Hello, this is Dr. S. Mocker. Today we're going to be talking about the World War II home front. If you went back to December 1941 and you asked someone how they had found out about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, they would be able to tell you in great detail where they were, how they heard the news, and how they felt about it. Interestingly enough, if you ask that same person about Pearl Harbor 10, 20, even 50 years later, they'd probably be able to tell you about where they were and how they learned of the news in the same level of detail. This is what scholars of memory call a flashbulb memory. In other words, a major historical event, a newsworthy event that a mass number of people remember very clearly because it was so profoundly earth-shattering or groundbreaking uh, that this memory kind of becomes clearly uh, captured uh, in their uh, brain. Other events in recent American history that also evoke this kind of flashbulb memory uh, ability to recall where you were include the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963, and then of course uh, for younger generations, uh, the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001. So the beginning of World War II for Americans uh, was a major event on the home front. As we discussed in our uh, previous uh, class, most Americans really were trying their best to stay neutral in World War II, to stay out of the war uh, because of our disappointment with the outcome of World War I and our desire to uh, remain unaffected as the rest of the world was going to war. Once the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and the United States ends up declaring war against Japan on December 8th and having Japan's allies, Germany and Italy, declare war on the United States, in response, now the United States is fully involved in World War II. So for this session, we're going to focus on the home front. What is happening at home in the United States? How are everyday Americans' lives changed by World War II? So World War II is a great example of a concept we call total war. Total war is exactly like it sounds. This is the idea that everything is devoted to winning the war. So this means that the economy is gonna drastically shift over away from consumer production towards war production. We're gonna have the growth of uh, government agencies to coordinate uh, industry and to plan uh, for materials of war. So for example, during World War II, we have the War Production Board and the War Manpower Commission that are government agencies that work with labor and businesses to ensure smooth production of war materials. Plants like uh, Ford, where they had been producing cars, shift over to making tanks and airplanes, for example. We're going to have uh, other government agencies like the Office of Price Administration start to regulate rationed goods. So if you wanted to buy things like coffee, sugar, butter, eggs, certain meat, uh, gasoline, metal, rubber, nylons, all of that uh, was regulated to make sure that there was ad adequate supplies for the war effort and for the troops. This wartime production will be finally what gets the United States out of the Great Depression as the gross national product or the annual output economically of the United States rises from $91 billion a year to $214 billion a year. So total war not only means shifting the economy so that as much resources and materials 
as possible are earmarked for the war effort so that our troop movements and our military engagements can be successful, but it also oftentimes means drastic changes for your population. A lot more people are going to go to work uh, in factories and plants that produce these war materials, and that's going to mean population movement. So in addition to uh, men who are drafted or men and women who enlist uh, in the armed forces, uh, getting shipped uh, for training to different bases across the United States, we're also going to see uh, people relocating to urban areas like Detroit, Chicago, Los Angeles, uh, specifically to get jobs in wartime industries. And so we're going to have a massive population movement of people. We're also going to have a coordinated response in getting people on board with fighting the war. While a lot of Americans were already very eager to fight Japan, given that the Japanese had attacked American soil at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, for some Americans, going to war against Germany and Italy was a tougher sell. So we're going to see as well a coordinated effort on propaganda. So remember that propaganda is the idea of selling a concept, an idea, cause to people. Okay, So think of it like ad campaigns uh, for going to war. The United States government is going to uh, ha issue propaganda through the Office of War Information. So the Office of War Information is going to work uh, together with private companies, for example, Warner Brothers and Walt Disney, uh, will both produce propaganda cartoons during World War II, and they're also going to work uh, to publish posters, um, newsreels, and other kinds of uh, media to really promote uh, American support of World War II. So a total war really is a profound change in daily life. All resources, your whole life is devoted towards successfully winning this war. This does mean that civilians are seen as equally important as soldiers in war effort. This is part of the reason why civilians become acceptable targets of war through bombing campaigns, because in a total war, civilian support for the war, whether it's support morale, so emotional uh, support of the war, or physical support of the war through war production, is absolutely crucial. So let's dig into a little bit more what mobilizing for war looks like. Let's talk specifically about how the United States manages to convert their industries from producing consumer products to producing the tools of war. Now, the United States government had already seen the writing on the wall. Uh, as we talked about last session, they were really concerned uh, about becoming the arsenal of democracy even before we officially enter the war, to produce uh, war materials on a larger scale to supply the Allies. And so the United States government had already tried to approach certain industries uh, as early as 1939 uh, to convert to producing more war materials. And initially, a lot of American industries are very reluctant to produce war materials uh, because this means that they would have to undergo very costly conversion. It costs a lot of money, time, and resources to uh, set up the infrastructure so that you're not producing cars, but instead are now producing airplanes. So this was a very costly process to convert uh, from producing domestic products 
to materials of war. Because of that, the government is going to provide incentives to businesses to encourage them to start this transition to war material production. Governments are going to provide things like lower taxes and low interest loans to businesses to be able to successfully make this transition. But again, most businesses did not take advantage of these perks uh, to convert to wartime production until after Pearl Harbor, in which case uh, many more businesses, now that America was officially at war, started to convert. Now, in order to successfully convert to wartime production, not only did you need to make sure that your workers um, are compliant, but you also have to deal with labor unions. The government supported the work, the workers in this. They supported the workers' rights to unionize, and they did this because they wanted to exact a promise of either no strikes or limited strikes and walkouts during the war. The number one goal for the government is to produce as many war materials as possible, and to do this, we need to limit work stoppages. So the idea was the government would recognize these unions uh, and get businesses to recognize unions. In exchange, they wanted workers to play nicely and to not walk off the job so we could maintain high production levels. There is a need for more workers during this time, so this means that the United States is going to start turning increasingly towards populations that didn't have access to these industrial jobs. The draft, where millions of American men are siphoned off into the military, means that there is an acute shortage of workers. And so this is going to really start to give much more options in terms of jobs and good paying jobs to women and minorities. So women and minorities have more job opportunities available to them because of the war. So let's talk about women first. So during World War II, women make tremendous gains in industry. By the end of the war, women will make up nearly one third of the industrial workforce. And unlike previous trends where women who did work tended to be young and unmarried women, the number of married women actually took over. Uh, the number of single women in the workforce during World War II. As many uh, women were encouraged to go and take on war production jobs uh, to be able to win the war faster and get their male loved ones home faster from war. A popular icon of women working during World War II is Rosie the Riveter. You've probably seen, seen the very iconic poster with the yellow background of Rosie in her jean coveralls, flexing her bicep and saying in the bubble, we can do it. This is actually the second version of Rosie the Riveter uh, created by uh, the War Production Coordinating Committee. The first version of Rosie the Riveter is actually a painting by Norman Rockwell. In Norman Rockwell's picture, she's far less stylized, far more realistic depiction of a female Riveter. Uh, this Rosie is very, very jacked. Uh, she doesn't have, you know, makeup on and her face impeccably made up uh, like the more idealized, uh, popularized notion of Rosie, but they both have pretty good biceps, I must say. So Rosie becomes this icon uh, encouraging women to take on these difficult, oftentimes physically demanding jobs to make up for the labor shortage in the war. But women aren't just working at home on uh, factories making war materials, they're also embarking on military service. About 350,000 women in the United States 
will enlist in female-only auxiliary corps. So the names of these units depended upon uh, which branch of service they were affiliated with. For example, the WAVES, uh, where the women uh, in the Navy, the WAX in the Army, the WASPs for the Army Air Corps, because the Air Force does not become a separate entity until after World War II. So these women are serving in women-only versions of the military branches, and most of them are not training for combat. In fact, none of them are training for combat. Instead, they're training for support roles. So the idea is that the women serving in these military uh, branches would be trained for things like clerical service, uh, as medics, uh, and as trainers, particularly uh, looking to the Air Force. The WASPs, or the female Air Force members, were actually oftentimes conscripted into doing test flights with new planes, into training male pilots on the basics of flight, and on flying these planes to more forward positions to put them into service after their manufacture. So most women are not seeing combat. The women who do see combat are, tend to be those who are unintentionally caught up in zones of war, particularly women serving as medics. Now, in the midst of all of this, women doing unprecedented jobs that they'd never done before, um, things like riveting and welding, joining the armed forces on a large scale, there's still this language in propaganda and promotional materials talking about uh, the fact that what women were doing was a temporary sacrifice. So in other words, we're not all of a sudden shifting to, you know, you go girl style feminism, uh, that women can do anything they want, right? But rather, they're talking about this as a sacrifice that women are making temporarily. So gender roles are only being upended for the duration of the war so that we can help bring your husband, boyfriend, brother, son, etc., home from the war faster. Okay. So the idea is that when the war is over, these women are expected to voluntarily give up these wartime jobs and return to the domestic ideal of the woman as the stay-at-home wife and mother. So for many women, uh, this is a liberating change but only a temporary one during the war. So women occupy all kinds of positions uh, during the war. Um, there's a great uh, picture that actually uh, was recently used uh, in a book called Nevertheless She Persisted of female firefighters at Pearl Harbor. Uh, this is a great example, this particular uh, shot of women embarking on work that previously was dubbed really only appropriate uh, or physically possible for a man. Now, minorities had previously only been allowed into very select positions within industry. Think the jobs that had the lowest pay and the dirtiest work, like custodians or foundry workers. This is generally what they had been limited to because of de facto segregation in industries. This changes during World War II when the United States government establishes via executive order the Fair Employment Practices Commission. So think of the FEPC as the forerunner to today's Equal Employment Opportunities Commission, or EEOC. This agency forbids discrimination in industries with government contracts. And during World War II, pretty much every industry had government contracts because of it being a total war. So all of these companies that were operating with government contracts were forbidden from discriminating based on race, sex, 
and religion uh, in hiring and promoting their workers. During most of its existence, the Fair Employment Practices Commission uh, was perpetually understaffed, underfunded, and in the not envious position of having to battle very entrenched racism, sexism, and anti-Semitism. However, the FEPC did open the door for more opportunities for minority workers uh, to be able to take these jobs, and many unions also took an active role in promoting minorities. Unions like the Congress of Industrial Organizations, or the CIO, promoted the hiring and promotion of minority workers at the national level, seeing them as great prospective new union members. But at the local level, there was a lot more resistance to the presence of women and minorities in the workforce. In fact, despite the best efforts of government agencies to minimize strikes and job walk-offs, we do see a wave of strikes happen during 1943 and 1944 across the United States. Most of these strikes are what we call wildcat strikes. So in other words, these are not strikes that are authorized by the union. These are workers spontaneously, without the blessing of the union, walking off the job. And in fact, many of these strikes, particularly those in 1943, get the nickname hate strikes because these strikes were specifically about the hiring and promotion of minority workers. So in other words, these are white workers walking off the job because they don't want to work with minority workers. To give you an idea of just how economically damaging these strikes were, between March and June of 1943, only five of these strikes accounted for 2.5 million man-hours of labor lost, or the equivalent of over 100,000 days of labor. So this is a huge loss of productivity in a time where, again, during total war, we're trying to minimize any loss of production. So many of these strikes uh, ended with initially businesses caving to workers and either firing or demoting uh, minority workers who had uh, whose presence had stirred these strikes. However, it's during 1943 that another executive order further expands and strengthens the Fair Employment Practices Commission. So after this second executive order, we start to see the government step in and say, no, you can't give in to these workers, these white workers who are throwing fits about having to work alongside somebody who's black or brown. You have to actually listen to these anti-discrimination guidelines. So we're going to start to see companies towing the line with the FEPC and pushing back against their white workers uh, and saying, no, we can't. Uh, demote or fire these minority workers. Government says we have to keep them. You're going to have to suck it up and deal. The relationship between business and labor remained tense. Many businesses only reluctantly recognized and dealt with unions, again, because of government mandate. And many unions were very much reluctant uh, to put aside all of their uh, hopes, dreams, and demands for a better world post-war. And in fact, unions had a reason to be optimistic the rate of union membership skyrockets during World War II to about 15 million Americans, an all-time high at that point. And most unions wanted to maintain official government encouragement and recognition of union after World War II. Uh, in particular, they wanted uh, to maintain this presence of unions so that workers can continue to enjoy safer working conditions, better hours, better pay, and 
more say in how the workplace was run, even once the war ended. This shift to uh, war material production meant that the United States was now pumping out thousands of aircraft, 100,000 plus armored vehicles, 2.5 million trucks, in factories located across the United States. This becomes the beginning of what we term the modern military industrial complex. So in other words, this is where uh, the military uh, develops new technologies. Like for example, during World War II, we have radar, sonar, jet engines, and computers introduced for the first time, used initially in military applications, and then uh, military contracts with private companies to produce these on a massive scale and then later after the war for domestic use as well. We have new centers of production that emerge out of World War II. If you looked at a map of the continental United States, urban areas in the south and the west coast become centers of industrial production. Particularly cities like Los Angeles experience a huge spike in population growth due to the booming aircraft industry. In the south, we see uh, Houston and coastal southern cities like Mobile and Beaumont uh, become huge population centers due to the expansion of shipbuilding. California actually becomes the largest industrial state during World War II, a profound shift from uh, what had been the Midwest, cities like Detroit, Pittsburgh, and Chicago, as the center of industrial production. Two million people moved to California during World War II, in part to take industrial jobs in places like Los Angeles. Overall, most Americans are on the move during World War II. Many people start to move away from rural or agricultural regions uh, to go work in urban centers, especially in the West and the North. Many people leave the South, either moving to the coasts or again, uh, to urban centers in the north and west. And this move creates a lot of infrastructure problems for these cities. In some places, the population growth between 1940, which is a census year, and 1944, the year the United States government called a special census, in those four years, some of these cities, like Beaumont, experienced a 600% population increase. 600%. That's huge. And you can imagine when you have that many people coming in in that short of a time, this is going to create all kinds of problems. This is going to create issues over housing. Okay, so it's going to be very expensive and very difficult to find places to buy or rent. It's going to create problems with uh, recreational spaces, particularly when we look at the South, where we still have segregation in place, Jim Crow segregation, meaning that white people and non-white people are not allowed to physically occupy the same public spaces. It's going to create uh, concerns for educational systems, for um, access to basic materials and food, again, which is complicated by rationing. So this is definitely something that um, all of this demand for production is drawing people to these areas because there are jobs to be had. But then when you get there to take your job, there's very little other resources for you, right? It's going to be very difficult for you to find a place to live um, or food to eat or a space uh, on your downtime to enjoy. So I mentioned earlier that the United States embarks on an official campaign of propaganda through the Office of War Information. The Office of War Information was created in 1942, and the task of selling the war to the American public 
was largely dominated by intellectuals who leaned a bit to the social left. This will actually become one of the contributing factors in the eventual defunding of the Office of War Information by Southern Democrats in Congress, who objected uh, to messages of racial unity uh, that occurred in some of these uh, official propaganda uh, materials. The idea behind the Office of War Information was that they wanted to promote the war in various media and emphasize um, not only why we should fight, right, that Japan and Germany and Italy represented a clear danger, but also to talk about the potential for World War II to be able to spread more freedom and democracy, hardcore American values, across the world if we were victorious. Now, if we look at the propaganda, most of the propaganda is against either Japan or Germany, with Italy mainly making cameos uh, in those propaganda. We don't see a lot of Italy-specific propaganda in the United States. And what's interesting is if we compare propaganda, cartoons, and materials uh, against Japan versus those against Germany, there's a very different approach going on. So when we look at propaganda against Japan, there's this emphasis of it being all Japanese that are evil. Uh, the Japanese are often depicted with giant buck teeth, very rodent-like features, so the message, the subliminal message that Americans are getting from looking at this anti-Japanese propaganda is that the Japanese are subhuman, right? They're this racial other, uh, that all Japanese are irredeemably evil. When you look at uh, propaganda cartoons, uh, like for example, uh, Bugs Bunny Nips the Nips or Tokyo Jokyo, uh, you can see just how racially stereotyped and caricatured uh, the Japanese often are in propaganda. On the flip side, when you look at propaganda against Germany, most of these propaganda materials make the distinction that not all Germans are bad. Particularly the Walt Disney cartoon Education for Death uh, really takes its time to depict how the German people have been brainwashed by Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. And the implication there is that it is our duty as Americans to go in and to show them the light, right? Um, so there's this stress on Nazis are evil, not Germans. Uh, and therefore, we start to see a lot more sympathy uh, towards the German people in this German propaganda. I dare you to watch the cartoon Education for Death uh, without getting a little bit emotional as it follows the journey of Jan Hans and how he becomes a Nazi. That is available uh, to watch on YouTube if you would like to watch. Other cartoons more humorously poke fun at the Nazis and the absurdity of an authoritarian fascist regime. Uh, most famously probably uh, Der Fuhrer's Face, uh, which is a cartoon in which Donald Duck uh, has a nightmare that he lives in Nazi Germany. And I'm sorry, you will get this, the theme song from that cartoon also called Der Fuhrer's Face, stuck in your head. It's very catchy. The United States is selling very different images of the Japanese and the Germans and their propaganda. A lot of that can be contributed to racial difference, uh, as well as the fact that it was the Japanese who first attacked American soil, not the Germans. When we look at more positive examples of propaganda, in other words, propaganda that's not meant to demonize or other the enemy, but instead to emphasize positive values that come out of war. Probably the most famous example of this 
is the Four Freedoms. So the Four Freedoms actually come out of a speech by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in which he talks about what he calls four basic human freedoms. So in other words, four freedoms that all humans, regardless of what nation state they live in, should have access to by virtue of being free human beings. And this becomes popularized in propaganda when artist Norman Rockwell um, creates paintings to represent each of these four freedoms. And these are published in magazines along with an essay uh, from different folks on what this freedom means to them. So if you look at the four freedoms, the first freedom that Roosevelt identifies is the freedom of speech. So emphasizing this as a freedom really invokes the First Amendment to the Constitution. Okay? And in Norman Rockwell's painting of freedom of speech, you see a man standing up and speaking at a town hall meeting, which is kind of seen as a hallmark of American political culture, right? Your local community being involved in governance. The second freedom he identified is also related to the First Amendment, the freedom of worship. And in this painting, you see uh, people of different religious faiths all in prayer. And it's understandable that Roosevelt is emphasizing this in his speech, which was originally given in 1941, given that uh, the outside world was aware on a very limited way of uh, persecution against the Jewish people by Germany in particular. Americans in 1941 aren't aware of the full extent of the Holocaust, but they are aware of earlier anti-Jewish laws and campaigns like Kristallnacht, uh, which took place in 1938, if I remember correctly. The third freedom is the freedom from want. And this is probably the Norman Rockwell painting you are familiar with of these four freedom series. This is the famous uh, painting of Americans sitting around uh, a table. It's Thanksgiving. You have grandma and grandpa at the head of the table. Grandma's got this huge turkey on a platter that she's in the middle of putting down uh, in this painting. And this is meant to depict this idea that all Americans should be entitled to a basic quality of life, a basic standard of living that protected their ability to have economic opportunity. What's interesting about the freedom from want is when this uh, series of paintings and essays was published initially, the uh, essay chosen for to accompany Freedom from Want was by a Filipino immigrant named Carlos Bulosan, who was a poet. And he talked about defining Freedom from Want as having access to the American dream for everyone, for all people. So regardless of your racial background, your religion, a, uh, your immigrant status, the idea that you still had access to pursue happiness and economic and social opportunity. That's how he defined freedom from want. The last of the four freedoms is defined as freedom from fear. And this one is depicted by Rockwell as a uh, parents tucking their children into bed. This seems like an interesting kind of selection, right? Especially compared to the other three. But really, it is a very powerful kind of image at a time where most people across the world have been experiencing warfare for years, and in the case of parts of Asia, over a decade, uh, to tell people that, you know, it's okay, you should have a right to not have to live in constant fear of hunger or war, uh, that we'll get through this and we will make a better world at the end. 
During World War II, many Americans were focused, obviously, on immediately winning the war, but there was also a concern with what would come next, especially after 1943, when the tide of the war seems to be shifting in favor of the Allies. And many Americans wanted to talk about what the world would look like after war as a way of focusing on hope, right? That we will win the war, that there will be positive changes associated. And so many Americans talk about what will happen after the war also because there's this fear that post-war the United States will slide back into the Great Depression. That is definitely a not unfounded fear, given that usually there is, after every war, a bit of economic recession as the economy adjusts uh, to a time of peace rather than war, and we make the switch back from war material production to consumer materials. Many people talk about this vision of post-war prosperity and how we can ensure the level of economic prosperity we're seeing during World War II continues after World War II. Many Americans start to uh, promote the idea of free enterprise. So in other words, to continue this economic production by avoiding excessive regulation of business and economy so that businesses can maximize their production and their profit. The idea as well for these businesses in promoting this notion of limiting regulation was that the war would produce a natural bump in spending after the shift back to consumer production, in part because it was impossible for consumers to buy a lot of products uh, during the war because companies just aren't producing them on the same scale. They're busy producing war materials. And um, a lot of Americans are doing financially well, getting uh, work in these factories, right, making a lot of money with nothing to spend it on. So there's this idea that there's going to be this kind of pent-up money and demand for consumer products, and then Americans will want to and be able to spend on consumer products following the shift back to peacetime. So essentially, what a lot of these American companies were promoting in talking about what World War II should look like was an embrace of what we call laissez-faire economics. Laissez-faire is French for let it be. The idea, again, that the economy should proceed with a minimum level of regulation. So this is a pushback uh, to the Great Depression, in which the first response of the First New Deal uh, was to increase regulation because they felt that an excess of capitalism, uh, business in the economy running unchecked, had led to the collapse of the economy and the Great Depression in the first place. In looking towards uh, support for their idea of minimal regulation, a lot of businessmen cited the work of an Austrian economist named Friedrich Hayek, who wrote The Road to Serfdom in 1944. And in his uh, book, Hayek argued that excessive government involvement in the economy was what led to dictatorship and tyranny, looking at the examples of Germany and Italy in particular. And so a lot of people, even still today, look at Hayek's book and make the argument that that justifies us not regulating the economy at all, or only in very little, because there's this fear that it will give the government too much power if we allow the government to regulate the economy. However, if you fully read Hayek's book, The Road to Serfdom, Hayek doesn't just say excess regulation leads to tyranny. 
But he also says a completely unregulated economy is also abusive. So what Hayek is arguing for in his book, The Road to Serfdom, is a middle ground. So he says pure capitalism abuses the worker and the consumer. Excessively regulated capitalism uh, will lead to governmental power and tyranny. So let's occupy middle ground. So what Hayek promoted uh, was basic worker protections like a minimum wage, maximum working hours, uh, antitrust laws to prevent the formation of monopolies, and the creation of a social safety net. So Hayek is much more moderate than a lot of people make him out to be today. When we look at the role that the United States government and people should have in the world after World War II, we have a couple of competing viewpoints. Henry Luce, who is a famous newspaper publisher and magnet, uh, published a pamphlet called The American Century in 1941. So early on in the war, he's pretty positive and, and confident about America's ability to win the war. Luce made the argument that America should accept its destiny as a major world power and use this power to actively promote American industry and democracy. So what's interesting about this is traditionally the conversation around the United States government had been that the United States should serve as a model for other nations. So think of it like the City on the Hill uh, sermon from uh, Puritan New England, right? The idea that America was going to be this model shining example for how the rest of the world should approach democracy and rights. But what Luce is saying is take that a step further. He says not only should we be content to sit back and be an example, but we should also actively market American uh, freedom and democracy. If this sounds a little bit like imperialism to you, you are not wrong. So that America should aggressively uh, promote their culture definitely does kind of smack a little bit of what we call cultural imperialism, right? Exporting your culture without directly controlling a nation's government. On the flip side of this, you have people like Henry Wallace, a politician, uh, who gave a speech titled The Price of Free World Victory in 1942. And rather than Luce's message where America kind of needs to be uh, the solo uh, agent of global power and promote actively American ideas of freedom and democracy, Wallace said America's role should ideally be a team player in global politics, that we needed to work together as part of an international coalition to promote freedom, justice, and economic equality. So essentially what Wallace is arguing for is kind of a global new deal, okay? In much the same way as progressives imagined World War I as a potential launching uh, point for a worldwide progressive movement, Wallace is arguing for more economic justice, uh, more social justice, um, like we saw in parts of the New Deal and making that global. So Luce wants us to be a lone wolf exerting our power. Wallace wants us to use our power in a collaborative way with other nations to improve the world. We're going to talk in a later class about which of these ideas will play out. Spoiler alert, Henry Luce's will, okay, for reasons we'll get to later. There's also this conversation of how we can protect Americans at home post-war. And... In 1942 and 1943, the National Resources Planning Board, one of these wartime agencies, uh, published a report 
in which they uh, argued that the government should get involved to help guarantee employment and provide a system of welfare after World War II ended to make sure that all Americans had access to a basic standard of living. So following that report in 1943, Franklin Delano Roosevelt started to promote what he called an economic bill of rights. So starting in 1944, Roosevelt and the White House pitched to Congress uh, an economic bill of rights that would ensure things like basic access to food, shelter, medical care, and employment. This was a big ask. This is a step up from Social Security, which had itself um, taken a monumental amount of debate and compromise to pass in 1935. In the end, the only part of the Economic Bill of Rights that will end up surviving and passing Congress is the GI Bill. So the GI Bill establishes this notion of basic standard of living for veterans. This, the GI Bill, which is still in place today, provides benefits like education, job trainings, a pension, and mortgage help to veterans. Now, this is no small feat considering the number of Americans who served in the military and would have access to these benefits following World War II. But access to these same level of benefits for the rest of the population, for civilians, would remain elusive to the general population in the 1940s. And in fact, the subject of our next segment is going to be talking about the experience of minorities during World War II and taking a closer look at how the war both provided a level of promise for a more hopeful future for some minority groups and also for others illustrated just how long the struggle for equal civil liberties and rights was going to take following World War II. 